let's turn to Jude once again, Jude beginning in verse 11 this morning. Jude 11 through 13, and I was kind of thinking this week a bit about um, reflection or meditation on, on the scriptures, and we had an intense call to worship from Psalm 52, and an intense passage today that's um, maybe difficult, but if we can't meditate and reflect on all of scripture, on the whole counsel of God, we're missing something. We Oftentimes we want to just reflect on you know, John 14 and, and, and Psalm 23, which by all means, we absolutely should, but um, the whole of Scripture is valuable and good for us to reflect on. So remember that as we go through this passage today. Let's pray. Father, we know that if this uh, body is to remain faithful, it will not be our faithfulness, but yours which sustains us. So place your hand of security over this congregation. I pray for myself, for the elders, for anyone who teaches, for for the members, as we all seek to explain truth to our neighbors and friends and family, that I ask that you just guard each one of us from falsehood and from sin, and that the many temptations to abuse your word for our personal gain. And moreover, God, I, I pray that you would guard us, this flock, from wolves, which would sneak, sneak in and, and devour this flock. And let us be people finely attuned to truth with a keen eye for counterfeit truth. I pray this series and this sermon would be useful uh, to those ends and for your glory and the purity of Christ's beautiful bride. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Jude, verses 11 through 13. Speaking again of false teachers, Jude says, Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is God's word. May be seated. As we are all firmly convinced in this room, I'm always preaching to the choir here, but doctrine is important. Teaching is important. John says in Second John, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked words. So the apostles sound the alarm for us with regard to false teaching, and, and oftentimes I think we, we would rather hit the snooze on the alarm. We can become a little bit sleepy about false teaching. Now, we've been in false teaching for weeks, so hopefully we are alert to false teaching by now. But even so, maybe more so, uh, we can become sleepy to these commands and these concerns about false teaching. Now, 
imagery is often a, a good way to, to bring our brains back to life. You know, David, um, when Nathan confronted David, he used imagery, and, and, it, and it shocked David. It brought him back to life. Here Jude is taking up the use of imagery to help us understand the seriousness of false teaching. So he, he takes up his paintbrush here, and he, he, he's going to paint a portrait of these false teachers to help us understand. <clears throat> so as we observe um, Jude's portrait here, I hope that it will stir us to greater alertness. And uh, the first thing he does is, is that we have to understand is it's imperative that we are moved by what the Bible has to say about false teachers. So he directs our t- attention first to the Bible. <coughs> um, here in this first verse, in verse 11, uh, Jude's interpretive method is, is typological. He's comparing types to um, this reality. And you re- remember he said back in verse 4 that these false teachers were destined long ago for condemnation. And these false teachers fit pretty much the same profile that they always have. And so he begins his portrait by pointing us to some biblical types of false teachers, people who foreshadow the false teachers of his day. So uh, he begins in verse 11, they walked in the way of Cain. We all know Cain murdered his brother Abel. Um, There's a kid named Cain in the park, so I'm going to keep him away from my son Abel. Uh, but really, Cain is, is so relevant here because of the way that the Jews sort of understood him as time went on. There was um, more development of the story of Cain, and the Jews understood him in a particular way. Um, and they viewed him as kind of the original pattern for sinners. So Adam and Eve sinned first, but they, they seemed to have repented and, and sought the Lord. But Cain was kind of the first of the sons to, to walk away, to depart from God's people. And also, the Jews saw Cain as um, something of an instructor in sin. He taught the rest of us how to sin. We kind of see a sense of that in 1 John 3.12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. It says he was of the evil one, which means he was kind of the first of the spiritual progeny of the devil's lies. He's the father of a lineage who would wage war against the seed of the woman. False teachers, Jude says, walk this same path. They walk the, path, the way of Cain. Um, so Jude's first brushstroke here with, with this comment about Cain is to give the observer an undeniable impression that these people are not walking in the way of righteousness. They're walking in the way of unrighteousness, in the way of Cain. They're cast from that same mold that Cain was cast from. We have to recognize, as we see in Psalm 1, as we see in Psalm 24, that there's no middle ground with God. Either we are of God or we are of the evil one. As we observe Jude's portrait here, we're meant to see for our benefit that false teachers land squarely in the wrong side of of that equation. We also see with his next um, biblical example of Balaam, again in verse 11, that they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Now, um, 2 Peter used this same illustration, and I covered it quite extensively when we went through 2 Peter, so I'll keep it more brief here. But um, commentator 
Gene L. Green says this. He says, Balaam's error was twofold, uh, greed and enticing others to sexual sin. Greed and sexual sin. So he used his prophetic gift uh, for personal financial gain. And then he also, from what we can gather from the Bible, dropped subtle hints that that the Midianites could corrupt the Israelites by um, enticing them, by seducing them. And that's, in fact, what, what happened. Greed and sexual sin are hallmarks. They're identifying markers, uh, the classic ones of false teachers. One of the great challenges, really, in this whole subject is distinguishing between a brother who's deceived, who's confused, and ill-informed in teaching the flock, but he, he's a brother, and, and the false teacher, because those are two separate categories. And it's important to distinguish them, really important, because we can't be going around calling everyone who's mistaken a false teacher a heretic. The Bible gives us identifying markers of who is a false teacher, and two of those markers are greed and sexual sin. So we have to ask ourselves, is, is this guy just confused or is he, is he a money grubber? Is he a sexual deviant? Is he pr- promoting perverse things? Is he promoting lax standards for sexual purity? And if so, those are dead giveaways for a false teacher, for a wolf. Which is why to me that the issue of, of homosexuality and transgenderism is, a, is a, another category when we talk about sin, especially when, we, when it comes to teaching, um, it, the question comes up, should we reject a pastor or teacher who believes homosexual lust and practice is accepted by God? Is that, is that grounds, just that belief alone, the grounds to reject such a person? We'll hear people, in fact, I saw it on the internet um, yesterday on this very issue, asking how can you cast judgment because you disagree with one point of somebody's theology? But th- this isn't a minor squabble over like your millennial view. <laughs> a person who holds and teaches a position like that holds and teaches a position which, biblically speaking, is a dead ringer for identifying a false teacher. They're promoting sexual perversion. So the answer is yes. <laughs> we, for somebody who teaches something like that, we reject them outright. They are a false teacher. So greed and sexual sin, uh, when a teacher is exposed as a wolf, it's almost always one of those two things. Um, the, the other one is power or authority, which we get into with this, the story of Korah, which is his, his next example. He says, and perished, they perished in Korah's rebellion. So you remember from Numbers 16, Korah and his friends, um, Dathan and Abraim, uh, gathered two, 250 chiefs of the people, and they went before Moses, or yeah, Moses, and they said, um, "You know, Moses and Aaron, you have gone too far. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord?" So Moses said, "Well, the Lord will show us who is His." And the net result was that God opened up the ground and it swallowed Korah and his friends whole and his family. And it says that they went straight alive to Sheol, which just means the ground or the, the grave in that circumstance. 
and the other 250 chiefs had, um, were consumed with fire. So the Lord definitively declared who was his. Now that Korah and his friends became known again in Jewish thought as kind of the, the prime example of the, the antinomian heresy or mindset, which is to say that they rejected God's law and the authority structures he had put in place. Jude said back in verse 8 that these false teachers rely on their dreams and reject authority. So this is another identifying hallmark of the false teacher. He has become a law unto himself, which really can manifest itself in a number of ways. You know, flippantly ignoring God's law in favor of um, his own morality. Or we can see leaders becoming overbearing, domineering, abusive. Sometimes people uh, like Korah make a, make a power grab, a rush for authority. They, they start a coup and try to oust those people whom God has put in positions of authority. False teachers like Korah are, are thirsty for authority because they desire to be a law unto themselves and to everyone else. So all of these three biblical examples um, absolutely happen. We've all seen them happen in the church today. It's been happening since the time of Cain and Adam and Eve. People who walk in the way of Cain still manage to find their way into pulpits. People who chase money, encourage sexual sin like Balaam, manage to successfully manage Christian blogs, popular disseminators of teaching. People who reject God's authority like Korah use any means to gain control of the church. That, that absolutely happens today. We all desire the truth for ourselves. We want to know it's true. We want the truth for our kids, for our spouses, for our families, for our churches. Jude is, is painting this portrait for us so that we can have a better biblical understanding and a better biblical discernment. He's given us some concrete questions really here to ask ourselves or to ask our kids perhaps if they're um, old enough to be getting into teaching and these questions will help us discern truth from error. We can, we can ask ourselves, is this person walking in the way of righteousness or in the way of evil, like Cain? That's a concrete question, for the most part. Or we can ask ourselves, is this person an abuser of money or of sex? Or is this person submissive to God's law, or does he think he's a law unto himself? So those are kind of Jude's broad strokes of his portrait here, giving us the biblical foundation, the framework of who these false teachers are. And now he's going to go and fill in the, the portrait with details here with some really uh, rich, descriptive imagery of what these people are like. So there's six descriptions of the false teachers. The first description is that they are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Hidden reefs at your love feasts. Um, your translation might say blemishes or something like that instead of hidden reefs. Um, but feasts or meals were common in that day as they are now and they were um, socially important times of bonding, probably more than they are now that somebody's included, there's a unity there, they're included into the community. 
In the Christian feast especially, it was marked by this word agape, this love feast. And from what I have read, the early church would share a meal, kind of like a potluck or like the first Passover. And within that time of the meal, they would also celebrate the Lord's Supper. So the whole thing wasn't the Lord's Supper, but they would celebrate it within the context of the love feast. So th- this whole issue of hidden reefs at your love feast is more sinister than you have bad folks coming to your potlucks. False teachers and heretics are making themselves at home among the saints to the point that they're fully integrated into these love feasts, this, this unifying feast, and even to partake of the Lord's Supper. So you can sense here in Jude that he's, he's kind of perturbed with the saints. He, he's saying, they feast with you without fear. You can, he's kind of pushing on them. that They're, they're in your midst without fear. You can hear him pleading, do something about these wolves in your midst. Which is why he calls them hidden reefs. Um, Like I said, some translations say blemishes or spots. It's kind of a difficult question, but I think hidden reefs is the better translation. Both are viable. But either way, it's not good for the saints. Hidden reefs are subtle. They're invisible. They're unknown until your ship lurches and cracks and you end up with your face on the deck. We cannot be people who blindly sail the waters. We need to know the waters in which we travel and really to heed the words of those who have traveled the waters before us. The Bible is a good map of where the hidden reefs are. Hebrews says that mature people are those people who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, distinguishing good from evil. So like I said, I hope after this series through Second Peter and Jude, where you know, Kelly helps pick out the songs and she asks me, what's the topic for this week? And every week or every other week, I have to tell her, false teachers. This has been going on for months. So I hope our antennae are up about false teaching by now. <laughs> the second image here is of shepherds, shepherds feeding themselves, he says. We begin here to kind of get the sense that these people are, they're shepherds, they're leaders in the congregation by and large. And um, they are like Balaam, using their gifts for personal gain rather than to benefit the flock. And I think Jude intends the reader to think of Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? So once again, they're using God's gifts to them for personal gain. They're abusing the sheep so that they can get fat and happy. The third image is of waterless clouds swept along by winds. Um, Peter used this illustration as well. The, the, these clouds on the horizon, they're big, they look good, they're bringing moisture and f- fertility to dry soil, and when they come over, they're a little more than just a shadow cast and they're gone. Jude also applies kind of a second bit of imagery here. He says they're swept along by winds. They're not stable people. They're, they're ever-changing, moved here and there by 
the, the latest fad or um, popular opinion or by the belief which is most personally advantageous to them. And I, we, we all do that. We all take up positions which benefit us the most in a particular season. I, I remember for a while there I was really swamped and I was going to school and I'd never done homework on Sundays. I believe in the Sabbath, raised to, to not do homework on Sundays, but there was this season where I had kind of come to a new conviction that, that it was okay. Biblically, I, I could defend it, but really it was just very convenient because I needed to get papers written on Sunday. And I realize now that that was the wrong thing to do. I was being blown about by winds because it was convenient. So we all do this to a degree. We all get blown around by winds. We ought to be chasers of the truth, no matter where we are in life or who is around us. So that's something we all need to repent of and work on. But for false teachers, this is an identifying hallmark, once again. This is something that characterizes a false teacher, that forked tongue, the, the two faces, the double speak. These things are readily found among those who would deceive Christ's flock. Fourth image here is fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. I stumbled on this, this guy who, who was a New Age guy, and he was one of the most popular new age guys he ran this blog and was making 40 or 50 grand a week on ad revenue on his new age blog and he was converted he he became a christian and i've heard him talk and he talked about how he had these spiritual experiences these out of body experiences and he'd ha- have this sense of spiritual superiority over people this sort of knowledge of a higher plane that no one had attained to before these real spiritual experiences um, but he he said I was having these experiences, but there was no fruit. I continued to engage in in destructive sin in my life. There was no fruit to these spiritual experiences. And these teachers, likewise, they claim to be agents of divine revelation, but they don't show the fruit of the Spirit. We see this in false teachers today, people claiming to have attained to the highest planes of, of communion with God, people claiming to have received dreams and visions, people claiming intimacy with the Holy Spirit, but you look at their ministries and you have to, you have to wonder. They can seem to adhere, or, or they can't seem to adhere to the most basic of Christian principles. Like the Holy Spirit comes to you at night and gives you visions, but he forgot to tell you that women can't teach in your church. And they do. They have women teaching in their churches. In one such instance... A woman claimed to have gone to heaven in a vision, spoke. She, she speaks in this talk with vulgarity of, of seeing the, the angels passing gas and laughing in heaven, and that she saw the Holy Spirit, and he was blue. I mean, like the genie in Aladdin, blue. <laughs> this is fruitlessness. Fifth image is wild waves. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. So the image I have in my mind is these big breakers just coming in and and slamming. They're really just impressive and slam against the rock wall. And then you have that jet of of foam shoot up into the air. And I think what Jude is saying is that their foam is their shame. This evidence of their ungodliness. It's not the glory they desire or that, that impressive glory of a big wave and it just demonstrates their own destruction. 
Calvin said it really well. He says, being inflated with pride, they breathed out, or rather cast out the scum of high-flown stuff of words in grand eloquent style. At the same time, they brought forth nothing spiritual, their object being, on the contrary, to make men as stupid as brute animals. <laughs> so again, these wild waves, I think it's just a matter of big talk, little walk. The sixth image here is of wandering stars. Um, the, the terminology wandering stars was probably, they're talking about planets, or they would have applied that to planets, um, to the moon or to the sun, these bodies in the heavens that move, that wander. And really the Greek word which from which we get our word planet means wanderer. Um, it, it's interesting. You can, you can observe Jupiter, and they could with the naked eye, and you can observe its pretty consistent pattern, but then it comes along and it starts to go backwards. Yeah. <laughs> and then it goes like this. And, and they call that the apparent retrograde motion of Jupiter. So what's really happening is, is we're catching up to Jupiter in our orbit, and so compared to the stars in the background, it, it looks like Jupiter's going backwards, but obviously it's not. Uh, but you can imagine like an ancient person trying to navigate by way of Jupiter, by way of the retrograde motion of Jupiter, that would be very frustrating. So these false teachers are, are like that. They're unreliable points of reference. They're shifty. And yet, millions use these, these retrograde points of reference as their primary points of reference. Nearly 17,000 people attend Joe Olstein's church. There's 14.8 million Mormons, 8 million Jehovah Witnesses, 1.2 billion Roman Catholics. So we have to say, Osteen is not a reliable point of reference. Joseph Smith, the Watchtower, the Pope, they're all wandering planets. They're really in serious retrograde motion. And yet people will build their whole lives around these points of reference. And tragically, this deception leads to damnation. Jude here uses a, a literary device. They'll often call it an inclusio. It's this notion of bookends, framing a topic with the same idea on both ends, kind of an envelope. And we see this device used in this passage. And when we see this device, we should sit up and take note because it's there that we kind of find the main thrust of the passage. So in verse 11, he begins this section, Woe to them. And he ends the, the section, For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We have these bookends of judgment, of condemnation on either end of this description of the false teachers. We have to ask here, though, how can he pronounce judgment? I mean, isn't that God's place? We just read a few weeks ago that, that Michael wouldn't even condemn the devil because that was God's place. How can Jude say that? But Jude isn't saying anything that Scripture hasn't already said. In other words, God has already pronounced judgment on this behavior. And Jude, as a faithful witness, is just testifying to the truth of God's word. Cain, Balaam, 
and Korah all faced judgment. And Cain was sent away. Balaam was actually killed by the Israelites for his ways. And Korah, we saw, was swallowed up by the earth and he went down alive to Sheol. So these are typological judgments on false teachers, on apostates. That's what Peter meant when he said, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So I think we can, with confidence, join Jude in condemning false teachers. We can say with confidence, Joseph Smith found God to be terrifying and all-consuming fire at his death, unless he had a radical conversion we don't know about. Or, or Joel Osteen, if he will not repent of his false gospel, we'll find that as well. And the Pope, as long as he bears that title, Alter Christus, another Christ, and continues to sacrifice Christ over and over again at the Mass, he will face judgment. So I don't know the hearts of these men. I can't declare their final destiny. But I can say with confidence, if they reject and teach a false gospel, never repenting and turning from their sins, they will face certain judgment. And theirs will be a stricter judgment as people who self-proclaim as shepherds of God's flock. And for the saints to whom Jude writes here, his message is a message of, of warning. It's a warning not to follow the magical loot of the Pied Piper, not to be that sheep that blindly follows other sheep or, or to drink the Kool-Aid. Yep. Uh, I've preached many times now through Second Peter and Jude the same message. The message is false teachers are headed for judgment. We don't want to go with them. As followers of Jesus, as evangelists and apologists in the world, and as people who care about the purity and well-being of the church, um, this, this could hardly be a more relevant topic. And before we close, I just want to try to bring this home a little bit more because this message is easily heard but difficult to live. I don't know if you've noticed, but this letter is not tame and mild from Jude. He's really serving up a spoonful of scorching hot Carolina Reaper hot sauce here in this letter. And can you imagine... These are real people he's writing to. Can you imagine the reaction when his letter arrived at the church? Wow. Jude, knowing the situation, knowing the corruption of some of the leaders, maybe he would have given, you know, tell, told the courier, give this to someone trustworthy. And that, that trustworthy person stands up and reads it aloud in the assembly of the saints. We have a letter from the brother of Jesus, friend of the apostles. We need to listen to this. He's reading that aloud. My shoulder muscles tense up just thinking about it. This is a tense situation. You can hear them asking, who are these false teachers Jude talks about? They're probably friends and brothers and uncles. You see what Jude has done here. What he's done is broken the cardinal rule of first 21st century morality. For one, he said someone was wrong. He said they were going to hell. Jude is being divisive. He's distinguishing between good and bad. Uh, how uncharitable, right? Hate speech. Hate speech. <laughs> we've all heard that complaint. Maybe we've made it ourselves. Doctrine 
divides. We, we just need to learn to get along, right? Sproul has the greatest retort of all time to this. He says, to avoid contra- controversy is to avoid Christ. We can have peace, but is it, it is a servile and carnal peace where truth is slain in the streets. So, of course, there are many unfortunate petty squabbles that divide the church, and that's grievous, it's horrendous, it should make us sick when that happens. But battles over gospel truth are not petty squabbles. Jesus said, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. This this is the reason he came, to bear witness to the friendliness, to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. One of my favorite passages in the Valley of Vision comes from the prayer called Crucifixion and Resurrection, um, which is speaking of our dying and being buried and raised with Christ. It goes like this, it says, Purge me from selfishness, the fear of man, the love of approbation, the shame of being thought old-fashioned, the desire to be cultivated or modern. Let me reckon my old life dead because of crucifixion, and never feed it as a living thing. Grant me to stand with my dying Savior, to be content to be rejected, to be willing to take up unpopular truths, and to hold fast despised teachings until death. That's a stout prayer, and it sounds very pious. But if we plumb our souls, can we really honestly pray that prayer and mean it? Can we really mean it when the people who despise us are the people we love and value? When it's the brother, mother, sister, or child? When it's a pastor or teacher or fellow church member that we've held in high esteem for many years? I think my answer has to be, no, I can't do that. Not, not on my own strength. I can't join Christ outside the camp when all that I know and love is inside the camp, not on my own willpower. The only way I can stand with Christ on Golgotha is that he has united himself to me. He has made me one with him so that I have been crucified and raised with him. He, He has made me his own little lamb so that I hear his voice and follow him even outside the camp. So that I can say with Thomas, let us go and die with him. That's a tough reality. This is the reality, the heartbreaking reality of the call of Jude in this letter. That that we divorce ourselves from the corruption, even the corruption which may be found in our own midst at the table of our own love feast. Jude says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. But that's the path of the cross. That's the path where Jesus walked, and there can be no better path than the path that Jesus walked. So if we have been sleepy and apathetic, hitting the snooze about the presence of false teachers in the church, I pray we walk away this morning with an increased alertness. Because really it's Christ that's at stake. If we go with Christ outside the gate, we suffer the crucifixion life. But better by far is the crucifixion life with Christ 
than life of carnal peace where truth is slain in the streets. That, that kind of peace leads to woe and the eternal gloom of utter darkness. So I pray that God will work the truth of the gospel in our hearts so that we can say what Paul said in Romans, that if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Praise God for that. Amen. Sing a hymn of response now. We've sung it many times through Second Peter and Jude, but it's a perfect fit. And from John Newton to boot. <laughs>